0: You can't grow in the wrong soil and you have to look at the situations like are you in the right groupings? Are there the right people around you? When you're passionate about what you do and your idea, every piece of information has perfect value to you. If you put a pitch in this format, what is it? How does it work? Are you sure is the A? And then can you do it? You find that you build your pitch the way people understand information. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi
1: Events and our awesome new sponsors, Vault Hill. More about them later. Okay, today's guest is an award-winning film director, a veteran television producer, C-level sales and presentations coach. He's a keynote speaker, a top-rated podcast host, and a columnist for Forbes. He's been named to The Hollywood Reporter's 30 Most Powerful Reality TV Sellers and is widely recognized as one of the great creative sales leaders in Hollywood. We all love a salesperson, don't we? Especially me. His three-minute rule has helped make him one of the most sought-after C-level consultants in the USA. Let's get him onto the show because we're going to have a great conversation about how you pitch the right way. This is Brant Pimberdich. Vault Hill is the world's first human centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours this is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this upon this activation process brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill Marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated V land then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity they can display their own nfts or upload different media logos or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets go check out vaulthill.io. and lastly thank you to najahi events who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Thank you for coming to join us on the podcast. Absolutely. It's good to, you've got a good energy about you, man. It's nice to see someone that comes in with a bit of energy about them. Are you an optimistic, positive type of person, do you think?
0: I mean, I'm definitely a glass is always full. And I don't even know what that would mean if the glass was empty. I don't even, I don't even hear you if you even talk like that. I only know delusional optimism. That is my world. So what kind of people frustrate you then? Um, I think I, I, you know, the, the neck there are people that look at every situation and they see problems, and so that I find really difficult to deal with because I, I just I don't live like that. I don't think like that. Like I said, it's it's delusional a lot of times in my world, um, and it started you know as a as a kid with protectionism me- mechanism to you know protect from being bullied or whatever it was. Who knows all of my issues growing up? But basically, I've I've turned to this sort of delusional optimism. I only look for the positive things. So it's very difficult for me when someone is more pragmatic in their approach to life and they wanna judge life on the merits of the situation, I'm like, I, I don't do that. I already, I've committed to loving being on this podcast before I get here, even if you're no good, it's okay. Cause I love it already. I'm, I'm already in love with being on this podcast. I've already committed to it. You, you say delusion
1: optimism. It's interesting, you know, when you think about optimism and the, the alternatives to optimism, there aren't any. Well, there's no good ones. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, what what would you, what would you choose? If you were making a choice, what would you choose? I mean, my dad will say, and and he's nearly 80, he'll go, I'm a realist. That's exactly right. I'm like, get away from me. I'm like, you're a cynic. Yeah. He said, no, 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 I'm a realist, Spence. You know, you got to understand, you know? And I'm like, how does that help you? With anything you do. Yeah. I mean, my dad plays golf. I mean, how can you be a realist playing golf? You've got to be an optimist. You've got to be looking. At, you plays play three times a if week. If you were a you know? realist,
0: you wouldn't play anymore. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, pointless. So tell us a bit about your backstory. The people in the Middle East want to learn more about you. I know that you recently went to the Middle East. So that yes. was cool, yeah? You're talking positively about Bahrain yeah. and Saudi. Amazing. You know, you haven't been to Dubai yet.
0: Not yet, but that's my next on my list.
1: Okay. So, so, so for all of the people in the Middle East and in the UK that listen to the podcast, tell us a bit about yourself.
0: So I grew up in Canada. I was a serial entrepreneur, mostly failed. Um, I was one of those guys that had big ideas, could put things together, convince people to sort of rally up and had operational sort of limitations in my ability to operate. And I just spent most of my time in Canada being effectively told directly or indirectly that I was crazy, that this was never going to work, that like, you know, get a job. Like, why do you want to do things outside of the box? Why can't you just be normal? And then, you know, I, I had tried to work on a television show. I had an idea for a television show when I was running a bar and I thought it was a good idea. So I went and funded it with my own money. And anybody listening, don't do ever do that. Don't ever do that. But I did it and I couldn't sell it. And I was living in my parents' basement with my wife and my two year old child. And my parents are like, you need to get a job. Like this is, this is over. And I just like, if I could just show the right people. And, and so I went down to the United States and I had a, producer that agreed to look at the material and then that producer showed it to somebody else and that went on for a week it went and i had all these offers and the next thing you know i got this big offer from nbc to do the show i had offers from companies to have me come and do development for them for tv shows and i moved to the united states and everything worked for me in hollywood it was like i found my people it was like people who appreciated ideas they appreciated big thinking they appreciated thinking out of the box they were can-do type people and People ask me all the time, you know, like how I love Hollywood and creating television shows like not really like it wasn't a dream of mine. It wasn't a passion. My passion was just trying to find something to be successful at and to be appreciated at. And so this industry showed me that so quickly that I became obsessed with just being as good as I could so I could get more people to tell me how great I am. Basically, my insecurity was like being filled for the first time in my life. And so that just propelled me to do well in Hollywood. And that was a great run. And I really enjoyed that. And so that became sort of the launch pad for everything after that.
1: So it's interesting you say that Uh, people telling you that you were great made you feel good about yourself. And that kind of like kept feeding you. That made me great. But you also, you found your kind of people, the kind of people that got you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that was the genius in what you did you were having the ability to find those kind of people that enabled you then to 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 mushroom out
0: yes it's the, it's like you can't grow in the wrong soil and i I speak for free at any school that wants me i I love to trying to teach entrepreneurial sort of vigor to the next generation and I say like you can't grow in the wrong soil, and so a lot of times what people do and they get taught this and we see this on TV is that you can do anything. You can be anything. Just put your mind to. And it's like, no, it's not true. It's like, you need to have what I call the reasonable probability of success. And you have to look at the situation is like, are you in the right groupings? Are there the right people around you? Are you in the right situation? Do you have something that could most likely be successful? And a lot of people get convinced that if they just work hard enough and believe in themselves, they can make an untenable situation work. And that's why I think people find so much struggle. And that's what I was doing. I had great ideas. I worked really hard. I was willing to do anything. But I was in a situation and a culture and an environment that didn't foster that. And so I couldn't be who I was supposed to be. And that's in business and as a person and as a husband and as a father and as a friend. Like Everything spawns from finding where you're supposed to be, where you can grow effectively. And when you find that... you 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 love to do it. And that's why people sort of have that idea that if you do something you love, you'll be great at it. And it's like, yes, that's true, but you have to do something you love in an environment where it can be successful. And then all of a sudden you realize like, I just want to keep doing this because it feels so good finally for me. Were you driven by a financial gain or success
1: or was it kind of like emotional Payments that you were receiving from the, the kind of like the respect and accolade and engagement other people were giving you. That that, I mean, that's a
0: really good question. I think that when I was in Canada, you know, this is in my twenties. I think that the financial element of it was an overarching pain that was just always on my shoulders. It's like, how am I going to pay for anything? My wife had a great job, and I would just lose the money and trying different business ventures, and we were always struggling, and so there is that there there is that first level of like i just don't want to struggle financially anymore but you know my first contract in los angeles was five times what my wife was making like more money than we had made in the last 5 years so but it it felt very like like a thread like at some moment somebody's going to come in and be like wait you're not supposed to be here go back to canada right and like so the financial rewards were a benchmark of success, Mm -hmm. particularly here and in this industry. I create a big television show, I get a massive bonus, everybody claps and they pat you on the back. And from, like I create television shows. So if you have a production company, nobody has a job unless I create the show. Unless I sell that show, everybody's sitting here wondering how they're gonna get paid. So you can get away with a lot of like personality deficiencies in leadership Mm -hmm. in a company if you can get people jobs, right? And so that's what happened to me where it's like, everybody was like so happy that I was selling shows and they didn't really pay attention to the fact that I don't run a company well. You know, I do creative stuff. I try to make people like me, but running a company is very different. Okay. My
1: situation in comparison to that is, is for me, winning matters. Yeah. So if you said to me, look, you could be number one, and you learn $100,000, or you can be number two, and you learn $200,000, what would you take? I take number one all day, every day. Yeah, well because, that's because you have a bunch of money. No, 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 this is, this is when I had no yeah, money. Yeah, I don't believe that. Okay? Because for me, winning mattered. No, because, I don't believe that. Because my, well, no, uh, it's true, because as, as a youngster, for me, I had to win. And yes. so I, I and I always thought that winning, OK, would lead me to the, the kind of like the, the, the yeah. bigger pot of gold eventually anyway. But it was that competitiveness. Yes. And if you look at some of the you know, I was in sales and so the competitions that I won were against people that were formidable opponents to me back then. Right. But I just had to beat them. Oh, I could see it, that. It
0: didn't matter what it was. I just had to beat them. But why it worked for you is because there is no situation where first place is 100,000 and second place is 200,000. First place is two hundred thousand. second place is twenty five dollars. That's the way the real world is. So that's why it works out. You must win, and then the financial rewards come with that, right? and And that's sort of the world in the entrepreneurial space and the capitalistic space is like the winner gets the gold for the most part. And so a lot of times it feeds that drive and that fire. And so you you get that a lot where it's like, oh well, of course you're winning because you're rich. And you're like, no, because I wanted to win first and foremost. And then that sort of came within it. the same thing with me it was like, yes, I wanted financial success, but I wanted to be respected and feel successful first. And once that started to happen, financially, it increased exponentially. And so, and I even found over the last five years where the possibilities of me to find more emotional success and more wins were gone. The television industry has completely changed. I already have pages of IMDb credits. I'm never going to have a giant hit like it, like we used to back in the day. So there's no more winning for me in the television world as much. Mm. And so all of a sudden the financial rewards became less relevant. And that's why I sort of, you know, ended up deciding to get out of television on a day-to-day basis because it's just like there was nothing left there.
1: How does that How does that make you feel now, though? Because that was... You know, you've gone from living in Canada. You've come yeah. down here. It's like, it's like people recognize me because I can do this. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're feeding me so that I feel great about it. And now there's either no substance or no future or no, no, no great yeah. reward within it. How does that feel for you, though? It's like a, being a
0: tradesman, you know, having your yeah. craft and being told your craft doesn't apply anymore. It was awful. It was awful because I was still getting massive offers to come and run my own company or run people's companies from a development. So financially, it wasn't something that I could let go. And so it, I, f- I felt like it'd be, you know, if you were a professional athlete and got hurt in the last game of the season and you kind of know you're never going to play at that same level, but nobody else knows. So they're still offering you big contracts. And that's how I felt for the last two or three years, which is like, I just don't have the fire for this business anymore, but I'm still chasing dollars. And so that was, as, once I got out of that mode and, you know, then I did the book and, and moved out of the day-to-day television, I sort of found my resurge again for a completely different style of industry and you know then again I've had a pretty good run there so that's been a little bit of those wins again I find it's. did it feel sad I didn't have time to feel sad it was more like frustration just built right and annoyance built and it's like I remember I went out with a couple of TV shows that I knew were going to sell like I there's lots of shows I know are going to sell they sell there's lots of shows I don't think are going to sell. I hope to get lucky. And then there's a few you're like, well, let's see if we can find somebody that wants it, right? But I mean, I, I wouldn't miss if I knew it was going to sell. Because I run television networks. I know the world, you know. And I would go out and I would be 100% sure these shows are going to sell and then they wouldn't. And I was like, what what's happening to me? Like I'm losing my edge. And the world has changed out there. I don't know what, what's working and what's not working. And so that just became very frustrating, like very frustrating. And I was just like, I don't want to do this. And then you'd get, someone would get a new job at one of the networks. And it was somebody who was like my old assistant's assistant (laughs) from five years ago. And and I'd be like, oh my God, I got to call her or him and be like, oh, hi, Dave. Like, nice to, (laughs) oh, we're so excited for you. Glad you got the job. Like, can we have lunch? And like- When I was in grind mode, I was excited about that. I had a spreadsheet of every single person I talked to and when and when the last time I had lunch with them and when their contract was up so I could call them and be like, and then I was like, yeah, I don't do that anymore. And so then I stopped being annoyed by having to make that phone call and then I stopped making that phone call. And that's when I knew it was like, yeah, I'm not working hard enough. I can't, I can't chase these people.
1: Okay. So before we, I know there's going to be people asking some, some of these questions and shouting at the screen (laughs) right now. So um, before we move on to the book and the next stages of what you did, okay. What, what makes a TV show something that's sold? Because when you look at the stuff that's most popular with people on television nowadays, um, it's brain numbing.
0: Yeah. Listen, and, and it's very subjective, right? It's just like music. You, you have a song that you're like, who would like that song? And it, it's very popular. Um, TV is the same way. It's it, You have to get sort of what's in the culture at the moment, what people are wanting to see, what you can find a window in. And then you got to tell a great story. You have to have great marketing. You have to have a great night on television when there's nothing else on so that you get people that watch it. You have to have luck from the Nielsen Rating Company that they happen to have one of those boxes that's working that the person tuned to. I mean, it's just such a pile of crap on what actually makes it work and what doesn't. And I have had shows that I've spent day and night in the edit bay overseeing with, my, with every fiber of my creative ability, and they don't work. And I've had shows where I told the network that I was going to be in the edit bay and I was going to watch it and I was going to take their notes seriously and I didn't do any of that. I never looked at it. I never watched the show. I don't know what an episode looks like and those shows rated and were big hits and I've had everything in between. So the truth is we don't really know. We don't really know. We do our best. We put everything out, but look at the, look at the media industry, television specifically. We, these, are the, these are the best... And the brightest and the most experienced people in creating television in the history of mankind. And we get one in a hundred right. And most of the times we don't know which one it is. And so you're chasing your tail. Wow. This, oh, this show worked. Let's go develop 12 other shows like that. You know, like We had The Biggest Loser, which turned out to be a big show. And we're like, well, let's go develop every version of a weight loss show we can. We sold 13 more weight loss shows. Because that was a formula that worked. And eventually that formula stopped working. So why we well, did okay
1: shows. so so that well that's quite interesting though because if you look at how the kind of like the world's evolving because biggest loser must must be 10 years old is it 17 17 years mm-hmm. old okay i remember watching it yeah that was at a time where it was almost What's the name of the female uh, personal trainer lady that you should scream Jillian. at them? Yeah. Jillian. that's right. Yeah. So, so the, the guy that was tough, but then the guy, the woman that was really tough. Yeah. Yeah? And She used yeah. to kick their ass and, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah. But that was a time where, when, you know, you'd look at that fat person on the screen and she'd be like, get up, you info and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And they'd get up and hate her guts because of it okay but nowadays i wonder whether you could even get away with doing that because everyone will be like oh you're fat shaming Fair. this
0: and you're fat shaming that and well how is it you'd still find something that would be pushing the envelope in some direction right so whether the line gets drawn and like hey this is now offensive and this isn't is a it's a pain in the ass obviously and it seems ridiculous and arbitrary but we don't really care making tv i don't really care if it's offensive i won't say it i just want to push the envelope and make you like gasp oh <gasps> And watch it and be interested. And that's just really, really hard to do. And now there's just so many places to find content. We've trained the audience to have content free on YouTube and everywhere else and all the social media. So it's just really hard to crack through and and you know, break through with a big, you know, interesting dynamic. Everybody gather around the TV show, you know, at eight o'clock. It's just it's almost impossible. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore.
1: That's one of the sad things, isn't it about places like Netflix in the olden days I, w- I would put a TV show on and it'd be a cliffhanger and then it would I have to wait a week yeah so I'd go, I could see it again yeah and I'd make sure I was in front of the TV yeah.
0: ready on Sunday at 7:30 or whatever it was ready to go again. And do you know how much content Netflix has? Like I make the joke all the time. It's like oh, I have three shows on Netflix, but you'll never find them so maybe I'll tell you I have five. What's the difference? <laughs> no one will ever know like you can never find anything on there right. So it's just, a, it's a very different world. And I'm very glad that I sort of moved out. One I'm day.
1: having this conversation with you. And I know that Sophia's sat in the background there. We've just spent the last two years making a documentary on human trafficking. Oh. And so I care very much about it. And we've been in Bangladesh and, and Nepal and in Spain and Holland and stuff like making this documentary. And I say to him, well, why, why are we making it? We, we just, just to have a documentary on human trafficking or just to go on a, you know, on a trip to go and learn stuff. No, because we want it out there. We want people to right. learn from it. Yeah. but. The the, the the challenge uh, or, or the odds of it becoming successful are, are really low, yeah?
0: Yes, More. it's better with a documentary film because it's one piece of content that you can use over and over again, that it doesn't like, a- it ages well. You can direct reach out to people. There's a great word of mouth to it. There's an appointment where it's like, I know where to go get it and watch it. Uh, television doesn't have that. Whereas a documentary film actually has better a better chance at impacting people and being, you know, where people can find it. So you made a good decision there.
1: Okay. Come away from me. Let's talk about pitching. Okay. (laughs) Sales, essentially. Pitching is what it is. Yeah. Okay. You're going to pitch somebody. Now I was in Santa Monica about four years ago, asked to be a judge in a pitch contest where people with their new businesses came and they had three minutes to pitch. That's right. Okay. And there were over two days. I don't know. Twenty companies that came in with their, they were looking to raise finance and they had their pitch and so one guy walks on from Finland he's got some crypto business uh, at the end of that three minutes uh, myself and the judges looked at each other we had no idea what he was talking about and my advice to him was go find somebody else to pitch this yeah and he was offended by that but that's all I could say okay then there was a guy that came on um, called Coco Jack he walked on he had a leather um, apron on. Big ginger beard. First thing he did is he cracked a joke and then he told us a story about how he kept cutting his hands, opening up coconuts, and he invented this product. Had me laughing, had me engaged, had me sold, saw a solution to a problem that didn't exist before. Okay, within three minutes, I sat there going, Do you know what? I'd buy one. And that was the guy out of all of the people over the course of that, that day, okay, that I engaged with, okay? Now, the, there were pe- pe- judges that had different opinions, um, but all of us agreed, that he would be a kind of guy that we'd buy something from. Yeah. So tell me what you've learned over the years being in the space where you're pitching, you know, TV shows, pitching business ideas. What what mistakes people make typically and are they that obvious that people don't know them they should go oh, to school yeah. to learn them?
0: It's really hard because it's it's not a skill that you learn in any part of your life normally. And then you compound that with the the world has changed drastically. We are dealing with a hypersensitive hyper short attention span audience that has had every version of every crap promise and promotional trick played on them for years so people do not believe anything you say any any big promises you make to try to grab their attention they are going to disprove in their mind instantly so it's very hard to know how to navigate and i have worked with 40 some odd fortune 500 companies now and there are several of them that i go and be like when i'm sitting there in a room like There are 11 of you in this room and you've been doing this for nine years with this product and you still don't know how to explain it. Like, how is that possible? And it's because the number one mistake is they think they have to have all of the information come out all at once. And when you're passionate about what you do and your idea and your business or product or service, every piece of information has perfect value to you. You know exactly what it's connected to. You know why it works the way it does. You know what it means and where it leads. And so we talk about that in in Hollywood with script writing. Everybody who writes a screenplay thinks it's amazing. Well, of course, because they know every character and they know every scene and they know what's coming up next and and they know the nuances and the the secrets and all the things. So it's, it's amazing for them. But if Aaron Sorkin writes a screenplay, he writes it so you know every nuance so that you can see every scene and then you understand the characters. That's the difference. And in pitching and presenting in a business setting, Your goal is to get your audience to understand the process, what your company does in pieces like a story so that you can lead them to the conclusion that they want to be involved. And that's a very specific process. Human beings process information and make decisions in three very crucial steps, and it's the same for every decision. First, we conceptualize. We have to understand what it is we're talking about or looking at. Then we contextualize, meaning like, okay, how does this relate to me or how can I use it or how does it work in that sense? And then we actualize it. Then we decide what we want to do. I want to hear more. I want to ask about your IP protection. I want to know the price. Like, We do every single interaction like that. And so that's what I call the rationalization story. If you're going to explain a decision to someone or to yourself, you rationalize it. We're the only species that knows how to rationalize our decisions. And so that becomes this story. I, I wanna know what it is, I wanna know how it works, I want some validation of that, how it's gonna impa- impact me, and then I wanna know what the next steps are. And so through the book, um, I developed this process and I call it the WAC method, WHAC, which is if you put a pitch in this format, what is it, how does it work, are you sure is the A, like can you actually validate that, and then can you do it, what's the process? You find that you build your pitch the way people understand information and you do it piece by piece at a time. And the number one thing I have to say to corporate CEOs or anybody that when I start working with them is I promise you'll get to say that. Like it's not just only three minutes. It's the first three minutes. So I know you love this idea and I know you like these secondary revenue streams, but you got to get people to understand the basics first. And that is what people find so difficult um, in the, it's just a hard process. It's taken me 20 years to learn how to say things in three minutes. Okay, so, so it's, it's, this,
1: is, this fascinates and excites me this type of conversation. So when, uh, and I've been in the, the wealth management industry for 30 years, nobody cares where the money goes. They care what happens. Yeah. So they care what the outcome is. So I, I give you $100, you're going to give me $110 back in 12 months' time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, but let me explain where it's going to go. And some people want to ask intelligent questions. They feel they need to ask intelligent questions. But the reality is the answer will just confuse them. Right. And, and they, they just and don't, they don't need, care. They, they don't certainly agree. don't
0: care yet. They might care later. But right now they want to know, what are you doing? How much money do you need? Why? What's the chance of me getting it back? Once yes. I understand all that, then I might dig into your deck a little bit and ask some questions. I might actually engage. There's a very big difference between the information phase and the engagement phase. And that's where people get lost is they want to throw in engagement questions and engagement ideas at their audience. And the audience is like, I don't, I don't even know what we're talking about yet. Like, I got to yeah. get my understanding. Yeah. It's a fundamental place of understanding. Then we can talk. You can turn that into a two-hour meeting but if you don't get through the first three minutes, and for most people, it's like, get through the first 30 seconds. At least just explain to them what it is. And I've worked with very, very large companies with, again, a dozen high-level executives, and to get the very first sentence of what we do, like, what is this company? What do we do? Sometimes it takes all afternoon. And they go from arguing over what they do to eventually arguing over the exact words And words that mean the same thing, which is what you want. You want to get where you're talking about micro levels, but everybody finally agrees what this company does. And it takes me longer to get that first sentence than it gets to do all the other stuff underneath. Because once you get the first piece of understanding, you start to build on it. And it plays like a story, the way you would naturally do it.
1: Love this. So it's kind of, there's two things that come into my mind. One with my kids and one one in business, it's sell the sizzle and not the steak, okay? But also talking to my kids who love sausages. And when, when I first explained to them what was inside a sausage, they love sausages. They want sausage, yeah. they want ketchup, a hot dog. Like, I'm like, what's inside it? They're like, it's sausage. I'm like, no, but what's really inside it? And they're like, it's sausage. I said, no, it's bumholes and eyelids. Yeah, <laughs> and it's <laughs> close enough, <laughs> but it tastes really good. If you tell them it's bum holes and eyelids before they taste it, they're not going to put it in their mouth. But they taste it and they like right. it. So you've got this—you've got this; these big companies that can't verbalize, yeah, what can't it articulate. is that they do. They—they right. they, they can't articulate it. Sorry, they—they're they, essentially—are they searching for big words and punch lines? Or what do you find in these experiences? What are the, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to give you something? more
0: intelligent maybe
1: than no than any they
0: are they have all the intelligence and all the big words you could ever dream of. What they can't seem to do is to get people to understand the value of what they're building, presenting, launching the, the way they see it. And so the main frustration is is that we're not everybody in the company isn't the same on the same page. We all sort of say a different message, but mostly it's like People just are confused. They don't understand that. So what I preach is simplification, right? It's how to simplify your message. And the truth is it comes from this new, I mean, it's not super new, but it's kind of new. This is a world we live in called, be ready for it because everybody's going to groan when they hear this. It's called decision by committee. And it is the new way that you have to deal with life. It's that nobody's making a decision until some committee talks it through and ruins it, right? Like we all know the pain of that. And the truth is, is that you can't win at that pitch. You can't get to the next level unless you can give the person that's gonna have to give it to somebody else the story. And so I tell people that it's like, hey, listen, it is simplify or suffer. That's your choice. Because if you don't wanna simplify your idea and your business, they will. Because if I asked you about the last pitch you heard, you would give me a simplified version. And you know how you'd explain it? You'd go, here's what they do here's how they do it, here's that I can, yes, they've done it 17 times already, or this is their sales, and here's what they're looking for. Like, you would simplify it. So, if you're listening it in, anywhere you're listening to this, just realize that if you're not simplifying your message, somebody else who's not qualified and doesn't work for you and isn't helping you is doing it for you. That's the way human beings work, and it's so much more beneficial to be the one that's simplifying the message and giving it to them ready to transmit to somebody else. Do small business owners and coaches and people in that space find it harder or easier than a big corporation to learn how to do it? I would say that it's easier. It's not sort of the size of the corporation. It's the personality type. Okay. Um, I find that the A type personalities have a harder time with it because they're like me or it's like I can just overpower it with my charm and good looks, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but I will overpower my shortfalls in the information by trying to use my personality or my sales tactics or my experience at my vocabulary to try to make up for that. And the problem is that people smell that from a mile away. Nobody wants to be sold. And so that's when you tend to be more salesy and then you're dead. The second people feel like you're trying to sell them something it's it's over for you. What I find is the sort of biotech CEOs of a public company who doesn't want to run a public company, wants to be in the lab, they actually do better, uh, faster, because they don't want to be on stage. They don't want to be in the meeting. They're not trying to impress people with their words. They just want to get you the information and find out if you're interested. So when I say like, hey, trust me, if you just do it this way, you won't have to put on a performance. doesn't matter what tie you wear. doesn't matter your body language. All that stuff doesn't work anymore. That's, that's old school thinking. Now it's like, can you get me the information that I want as quickly and efficiently as possible? That's what I want. And, you know, I do this big thing on stage where I talk about the, the hyper sort of focused attention span that people are all, you know, we, got, we have an attention span of eight seconds and a goldfish is at nine seconds. Soitness oh, now. Yes. And so you ask, why is that? Is it because of social media, right? The iPhone, everybody's got a phone in their hand. It's like it's actually not that. The truth is, we focus more intensely and efficiently than any other time in human history. If I give you my attention, I want value right now. Otherwise, I'm off to something else. So you have to be able to combat that. And what as a sales guy, as you know, what we were taught was what's called the state and prove method. I'm going to state something that you want, sell the sizzle. Here's something. Would you like to lose weight and eat anything you want? You're like, oh, yes. Yes, I would. So now I'll tell you how to do that and you're interested, right? That's the, that's the formation of the elevator pitch. And if I could have a time machine and we go back to the 1980s, maybe that might still work. I want you to picture yourself in an elevator today and somebody gets in and they lean in and say, oh, excuse me, Spencer, I have an investment opportunity that can make you four times your money by the end of the year. Would that interest you? Do you lean into the person and be like, ooh, tell me more? Or do you lean out and be like, oh God, what a load of crap already, right? Like if someone said to you, hey, I just came out of the lab, we've cured cancer. You'd be like, whatever. I'm sure you didn't, right? Like you wouldn't believe them. That is the way, that's the way state and prove works. And it's because we've blasted people with these over-promising, under-delivered life marketing clickbait all the t- commercials so now what i teach is a is a formation called the the inform and lead method which is like i'm going to give you the information in pieces and i'm going to lead you to the conclusion i want and that's how hollywood storytelling is done when when we start a movie we don't start with the ending and tell you what happens and then try to explain to you why you care and it's like we start with the little pieces and f- build you in and By the end of the movie, you're like, you want it to end exactly the way it ends. If anybody has a movie they've watched 50 times, you still want it to end the same way because that's how a story builds you to want the same thing. So building a pitch like that is really important. And how
1: many companies do you believe take that seriously? And how often do you see people, you know, just getting it so wrong, it's unimaginable?
0: You know, I think that they know instinctively that they need to do that and when I can unlock that for them like you know if I have these these great little sort of three-day seminars that strip down a business and rebuild it and it's they can feel the power of it right away and what it does is it changes the level of confidence they have in the marketplace because and I will get calls from CEOs and, and emails saying like can you tre- teach my sales force to be more confident and it's like no Confidence is not something you can teach somebody. You can pretend you're confident, but people know that. Confidence comes from your belief in the value you bring to others. If you believe what you have is valuable to others, you will be extremely confident. Um, and I use the example on stage. Imagine if I was coming to pitch you to be the, to be the sort of caterer for your wedding. You and your bride are taking meetings and I want to pitch you, let me cater your wedding. And I'm going to explain to you the chef that I have with me. That's going to be there on your wedding day at the reception to cook for you. And my chef is Gordon Ramsay. How many words do you think I need to pitch you that idea? Right? Like one I have Gordon Ramsay. four words done, done, right? How am I going to be feeling? How confident will I be? If I have that, I know what kind of value that brings to you. So now I don't use a lot of words, I'm not using giant adjectives, I'm not explaining to you his Michelin star histories, I'm not selling you anything. I'm excited, I'm confident. Now, flip that on the side, if it's my brother-in-law, he's an ex-convict, he just got out of jail, he doesn't really cook, but he's super mean and he's pressing me for a job, and he says if I don't get him a job, he's going to be really pissed, and I come to pitch you, how many words am I going to need to try to pitch you the idea that my as, chef as is- As many as you can until you right. get me at least a little bit right. Triggered. Yeah. Oh, the chef's not important. I'm really the thing. I'll be there the whole time. And I tell you your pride and you will notice. Physically, I'm I'm not confident. You can tell. And if I'm pretending to be confident, then I come across as a as a salesy, scuzzy kind of guy right away. And the more I talk and the more I pitch, the less you're going to believe me. And so that's why sort of the book is like say less to get more. Like if you say less, you will actually convey more value. And it, it does take a little while for people to understand that. But once they, once they start, they're like, oh, my God, it works. Like, and then they feel better. They're more confident. People trust them more. It's like it opens up a lot of elements. These are skills. Yes.
1: Okay. And they're skills that are being taught and, and being learned. Yes. Okay. But a lot of people don't believe the, 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 what we talk about is a skill. They believe it's some inbuilt personality um, disorder or order (laughs) that that, that we've got something, you know, you're quite an extrovert, kind of outgoing guy, you know, you're friendly, you're quite chatty. That must mean it must be part of your kind of like your character and your personality. My grandmother would say, you've got the gift of the gab or something like that. Yeah. Now, I... It, I want to punch people when I hear this kind of stuff because I'm, I'm deeply offended by the fact that I worked for years and learned <laughs> effective skills to be good at what I did. But a lot of people are also because they don't think it's a skill and it's, it's something to do with their character and personality. They don't feel they can do it.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that is the way we used to feel. It's like, it's like, Oh, he could sell ice to an Eskimo. Yeah. And you're like, well, what the hell would I want to sell ice to an Eskimo for? Yeah. Like who would do that? Sand to the Arabs. Yeah, Right. It's just like, well, that's not really a compliment. And that isn't a skill, right? That is the ability to manipulate and to, and, and to sort of sway people beyond something that they want. That's not what I teach at all. And I don't even think that's as possible as it used to be. It's very difficult. I worked with a company that wanted to change their timeshare business. But at the core of their timeshare business, it was like we need to trick people into buying these things. And I was like, yeah, I, I can't help you do that. That's not what I do, Right. What I can do is help you find the core of your information, where the value is, and get that to your audience right away so they can make an informed decision and not feel like you're selling them. And that's what people really want. And so the skill is not in the sales. The skill is not in the personality. The skill is in the ability to convey information clearly, concisely, and accurately. And if you can do that, it creates a system where the person wants to engage with you And that's why you can take a three minute pitch and turn it into an hour meeting because now they understand the process and they want to talk real things. It's not about them just like trying to figure out what it is that you do and why you're saying it this way. And then they're not trying to poke holes Mm -hmm. in your story. And I think that that's the skill. The skill is to learn and to trust that your information, if laid out in a proper story will be compelling. If you don't believe that, that's a whole other issue. I can't help you with that. But if you have something of value and you want other people to understand it, that's what I do really well. Got
1: it. Did you write the book out of frustration or did you write the book because you felt compelled to get this down in a book format? The uh, reason I asked the question is that I wrote a book. Yeah. Because I was told I needed to write a book, and I hated every part of <laughs> writing the book. It wasn't it wasn't a fun experience for me at all. And then I was told, you know, once you're you're an author, you're an authority, and it's a real good value calling card for you, and all this kind of stuff. And still to this day, um, I haven't. I don't believe that. Yeah. Okay. If I'd have written it out of being absolutely frustrated with everybody, then maybe it would have come from a different place. So tell me about yours.
0: So I. It was a total coincidence when I was at one of the um, I was at one of the places in L.A. and somebody overheard me pitching a, some ideas to my family because I was having a bad day that day, <laughs> and I was telling them about the the ideas that the television network didn't buy, and they were like, "Oh my God, that's the greatest idea I've ever heard!"
1: And I was like, "I know. How
0: could they not buy it, right?" And I <laughs> I had a few drinks by then, so I was getting pretty loud and like and and then I looked like a hero, like and they were telling me how smart my ideas were. Well, surprise, surprise, Brant wants to pitch a few more ideas, right? So. I had an investment banker come up to me after and he said, hey, can you teach my clients to do what you do? I was like, no, I can't teach people how to sell TV shows. I could barely do it. And he's like, no, I want you to teach my clients how to pitch their ideas without putting them to sleep. And I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe. And so he happened to have a conference and he invited me there and it was an oil and gas company that he wanted me to come see. And I, I sat in on the pitch and it was 22 minutes long and it was the worst thing I'd ever heard in my life. This is a $2 billion company. And I was like, I have no idea why anybody would invest in your company. I'm not even sure what you did. Like, I couldn't even believe that he would, like this is a guy who ran this huge company and this is how he spoke to people and this is how he presented himself. I was just like, I can't believe this. And so I had, I, you know, he, they asked me, well, what did you think? I was like, oh, I better, I better listen to it again because I didn't get any of it and I did go through it again. And I, you know, and the audience is basically, again, sleeping by 23 minutes. Nobody asks questions at the end. And, and I heard him say, that he could still drill for oil. And so I went after Master. I said, listen, I just want to make sure I heard this right. Did you say you could still drill for oil at $32 a barrel where everybody else is laying down their rigs at 37 he's like, yeah. And I was like, it took you 17 minutes to say that. Like, you spent three and a half minutes at the beginning telling people who's on your team and how you guys used to work at Chevron. And it's like, that's the only thing that was like, why did you wait so long? And he's like, I just said all this stuff. So we redid some of his slides. And sure enough, the next pitch, actually went a little bit better. and There was a couple of questions in the audience, and he was like, oh, right? So he said, hey, can I come work with you? you got to help me redo the whole pitch. I was like, I got a job, dude. Like, no. No, he begged, and he came out on the weekend to flew into Los Angeles. So we, we went and did that, and I didn't have any idea about oil and gas. I was like, well, let me just show you how I would pitch this if I was trying to get people to understand it. And we chopped it up. And he left, and he seemed happy, and it seemed good to me, and I didn't think much of it. And two weeks later, he left a voice message on my on my phone and you could hear the emotion in his voice. He was cracking a little bit. And he just said, like, you've changed my life. I, I'll i never be able to thank you enough for what you've done. We just completed our raise. I used to hate going on the road to do this. Now I'm excited to tell people what I do. My wife thinks you put something in my drink and changed me, but I just wanted to say thank you. And I was like, holy crap, no network president has ever said anything like that to me before ever. And I am one chromosome away from being a caveman. So my ego was like, oh, yeah, Brent likes this. Brent <laughs> wants more of this, right? And, you know, you know the investment world. You make, you make some, an investment banker some money, and he is your best friend. And he was like, I got other clients you need to talk to. And so I'd do that again, and another client came. And I found pretty quickly that I liked doing that more than I liked doing the television stuff. And for me, the book was sort of like I can't work with everybody. And there are companies that don't have the financial resources or I don't have the time. And it was just like, I I don't want to say no to anybody. I like being told how, you know, how, again, I make the joke. I just want to hear how pretty I am. Like, that's so it, right? Go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, so the book became sort of like this ability to like get it all into a sort of an, an instruction manual, how you can do it. And then you know, and, and that went pretty well. I got a, a big publisher, which was kind of fun. Um, but it was interesting because the big publisher was like, it, it again, it massaged your ego because I got to put, you know, Random House on my invites and things like that. But you realize pretty quickly, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a lot of work. And the book, you know, and I have, I have another book deal. And I'm like, I don't want to write another book. I, I like this one. And I don't want to go through the process again. And I just want to keep doing this. So that's how the book sort of came. And, and I've been working on that since.
1: When you look at the type of clients that you ideally want to target moving forward, give me an idea of who, who's your perfect type of potential client.
0: You know, I, I like the, it's, I have three sort of main criteria, right? One is I have to be able to be excited about the company. I have to be able to tell people like, what are you working on? I have to say like, oh, it's a cool company, right? Like, so it's got to have something of value underneath. It can't be like, hey, if we could pitch this better, it, people would be more interested, but I just want you to make our kind of crappy idea better. That doesn't work for me at all so it's got to be something that's like a diamond in the rough kind of thing where it's like oh if people understood this they'd have to be interested and, and i think that's good a lot of people are frustrated so i like being able to say that for me it's got to be people that are running or, or the principles of the company that i could introduce to anybody in my network because a lot of times with clients that's part of the gig where it's like oh i need to introduce you to them or let me talk to them this person or i want to get this sort of celebrity person as an you know as part of your an endorsement or something like that there's There's an opportunity because of my weird Hollywood Rolodex to, you know, make some things. So if it's people that I don't think I want to introduce to people, that becomes problematic. And then the last thing, it just has to have big potential. Like I just want, I want things to work out. Like I don't want to be helping you increase sales incrementally by 3% year over year. Like if that's your goal, it's like, that's great. And you can do a lot of things to do that. Um, and in theory, I guess you could pay me enough to go do that. But like, for the most part, I'm looking for something that like can be a breakout success or Mm -hmm. change the course of what you do or, or land you a big sort of proposal or something like that, that kind of excites me. So, um, that's sort of what I
1: look for. And when you look at the type of people you deal with in those organizations, are you, are you always aiming to have the CEO? Okay. As the guy that, 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 that's leading this. Or sometimes is it the COO that gets on with it? Or are you dealing with, you it's know, chief commercial officer?
0: A lot of times it's the IR team. If it's a public company, a lot of times the IR team is like, oh my God, we need help. Um, it is most times the CEO who'll come in and be like, hey, my organization is struggling in these five places and I need to sort of like restructure that. And I just had this happen in the Middle East where, you know, she wanted me to come out and work with each one of her teams separately And then once we got there, she's like, wait, I need us all to be in the room together because our over like the the larger company, we don't even know how to do our messaging. Like, so it's, it's always good from sort of the top, but, and I do have clients where the CEO, you know, I've come to meet the CEO long after I've been engaged and it's the, the team or the marketing team. And it's like 90% of the time that messaging has to come from the top and down, like everybody's got to get on the same page, which is surprisingly easy. Because when you're only dealing with you know those opening few sentences and you can pitch your entire business in you know less than three minutes, it's easy to get everybody on board. So that's sort of my goal. when you look back at your childhood and
1: your and how you grew up with your mom and dad is, is there some form of trail in there somewhere that, that led you to needing this acceptance that you spoke <laughs> about in the early days I mean, yeah what's what's caused you to need that 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 kind of like it's almost like Popeye needed the spinach
0: yeah I you know that's that's tough and I don't want to start crying no I'm kidding but it's it's like my my parents were a little on the tough love side of things my dad was like uh, you know he didn't wake up every day trying to figure out how to make me happy like I do with my kids right like (laughs) that's the new parenting move right and so it wasn't Like it wasn't just like I was basked with you're so great, Brandon. You'll be wonderful. It was more like I was a bit of a jackass, and a bit is depending on your definition of a bit. Some might say a total jackass, but and my dad was like he had trouble with that, right? Because it's like what are you going to amount to? You're you know you you have no work ethic. You, You know you're such a goofball. And my unfortunately for me, my verbal and you know sort of cognitive abilities. And my ability to communicate was way advanced for my maturity level. I was very stunted and immature, very immature, but also very gifted verbally and persuasion. So that's not a good combination, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so that you gobby. Yeah, and I just could not find, I just could not find acceptance. And so it became difficult. And I and I I felt like I had so much to offer. And everybody was like, ugh, Brandt, ugh. You know, like that's how I felt. And so I think it drove me to find a way. And I just, I actually thought I was going to spend the rest of my life just trying to figure it out and never find it. And, you know, and people ask, it's like, well, I'd been in, in people's living rooms trying to raise money for my stupid TV ID. And if I didn't get a check for $5,000, like I wouldn't eat. And so it teaches you, yeah, it teaches you how to sell, but more importantly, it teaches you how, how to not appear like you are desperate to sell. Because if people feel like you'll say anything to make a a sale, then they don't believe anything you say. But Hold on, go back a bit. Because
1: when that was happening, when you, you said you were immature but mature and your vocabulary was good, did you answer back a lot?
0: Yeah. And like, you know, growing up in school, my teachers were at such a disadvantage because, like, if they wanted to call me out in front of the class, like, I could flip that around on them and eat them alive in eighth grade, in you're remind- sixth grade. You're, you're reminding
1: you know? me of somebody that was in my class at school. Right. And he said the teacher, he, he was lippy. I don't know what he said, but he was lippy. And the teacher pulled him out of the front and hit him on the hands with a ruler. And as he went to hit him on the hands with a ruler, the guy said, Where does it say in your employment contract you can hit me on my hands with a ruler?
0: Right,
1: and I would have never right. thought of that. I'd have been the one going, ah! "Okay," then I'd have cried all the way home, you know, because yeah. I had these marks. But he, he said, "Where does it say in your employment contract you can do that?" And the teacher stopped.
0: Yeah, and I
1: was thought, "You bastard!" You know, where did you learn that shit from? But it was like he had the the foresight to be able to think, you know, intelligently, but also yeah. then also then uh, verbalize that in a way that was was kind of. Um, ambivalent, but also a little bit of an undercurrent of a, a, a passive-aggressive in his Yeah, response. see,
0: I would be more like the kid who would try to get himself into that situation so I could use that line. Like, like he seemed like he might have even have more decorum. I, I was just a loose cannon in that sense, and like a class was, clown. He, at 22 and, years
1: old. He's, that, that particular kid sold yeah. his business for $21 million.
0: There you go. So maybe I should have had more of that. That would have been <laughs> nice. So, yeah, that, that was just, I just it took me a while to catch up where you could control where the maturity to control your abilities matches with the situation. Right. And that, that, and it's funny. Did you feel
1: misunderstood?
0: Oh, every day, every day. Yeah.
1: And was that, was that misunderstood? I'm going to be a terrorist or was that misunderstood? You need
0: to understand me better. It was, you need to understand me better. If you just could see what I see, then you'd want to be involved. You'd, you'd, you'd buy in. Right. That was the constant thing. If you could just understand it the way I understand it. I must, I have to explain it again. I've to explain it three more times because you you're just you not getting it. If you're saying no, it means you don't understand because there's no way I could be wrong about my idea. It's so good. And that took a little while to figure out how to explain that to people in a way that, didn't, that wasn't off-putting. Okay, lastly, before we end, tell us about your experience in the Middle East. Um, well, I didn't have a lot of expectations of the Middle East. Uh, so when I got asked to go there, I, I initially was hesitant. And then when I looked up who, you know, the company that was bringing me out and she wanted me to come out there and she was, you know, one of the predominant female CEOs in Saudi Arabia, one of very few. And, and that, that really excited me because she was very, very sort of special. And I was like, Oh yeah, I have to go work with this. They wanted me to come in and do the seminar, and train their company. And I was like, Oh yeah, I have to go do that. So I flew into Bahrain and I was going to do that in Saudi Arabia. And, I was so stunned how modern it was and how much English there was. And I felt so comfortable because my travels around the world, you know, when I don't speak the language, I'm a little less comfortable because I can't be as commanding in the situation or as fun or the, you know, my, again, my sort of, my defensive personality is to try to be sort of fun and interesting. And, and if you can't speak the language, it's very hard to do that. So I was able to speak the language and interact with everybody, which was like really exciting. Like, Oh God, sorry. (laughs) which was really exciting to be able to to interact with everybody and really get to understand the character and the culture, which I wasn't expecting to be able to do. Like I was expecting to be able to have to have an interpreter by me the entire time. So it just just opened up everything. And I fell in love with the way the culture deals with hospitality Mm -hmm. and connection with people. Mm -hmm. And it felt so purposeful and proud and I think, you know, in the West, we're just, we're very loose. We're a little wild and ragtag and anything goes, which is great. But there is something to be said for a little more structure and decorum. And I really was drawn to it. I had an incredible time, met some incredible people. And I would love to go back. When they
1: all wear the same clothing, the like Kandura, you, yeah. don't, you don't know whether they're uh the head of the, the police force. Oh whether well, right. they're a guy on the street. So you
0: we always used to be when I yeah. was first there. Oh, hold on a minute, he's
1: just walked in the room. Yeah. Who is it that's
0: walked in? Well, I just found that again, I felt like it was like, you know, cause I was, I, you know, wearing my fancy custom suits and and then I look and it's like, wow, they're up one level than that. Like that's the like that is the top of the line right there. It's all pressed and like so, and i just loved it i loved it i loved always it. wonder how they keep them so clean i know right <laughs> there's not a mark on them not a mark on it as <laughs> white as it can be not a single mark perfectly pressed i was like damn it came out today and i was like oh i'm in my suit like
1: me there's a funny story of a, a lady that i know that uh, went to work in the middle east for emirates airlines she had her training and then in her her third week of the job, she was serving food and she spilt ketchup on the shoulder of somebody wearing a Kandora. <laughs> and if she listens to this, she knows, she knows who it is. And she didn't know what to do. Should she tell him? Should yeah. she not tell him? Should she tell him? She... So she decided not to tell
0: him. He left the plane with tomato ketchup. <laughs> I just think to myself. T- I thought it, because there was, must have been 300 people, 300 men at this, at this luncheon announcement at Saudi Aramco. And I was like, there's no way that out of 300 of these people, somebody's not spilling something from lunch on them, right? <laughs> like, and so then what do you do? It's just like, it's a big white, yeah, like, it's like a billboard, right?
1: That's right. So, yeah. In the winter, they wear different colors. A friend of mine, Omar Al-Buswadi, the first time I met him, because they, they usually wear sandals, the guys, yeah. yeah? And so I meet him, he's in his kandora, and he's got bright orange Nike sneakers on. Oh. And I, I'm looking, I didn't know what do. Should I ask? Should yeah, I not ask, you know, what do I do? And I I said to him, I said, I really need to ask, you know, why are you wearing these bright orange sneakers? He says to me, have you ever worn those sandals? (laughs) What do you mean? He goes, these are way more comfortable than those
0: sandals. (laughs) I loved it. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm looking forward to going back. Excellent stuff. Well, thank
1: you so much for coming to Tell Your Story and join us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes, indeed. Thanks for your time, Brent. You got it